morning and welcome to the Guts and Glory, the SGH Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm Dylan. And I'm Andrew, and I'm pleased that all your listeners are able to join us again in our podcast where we provide in-depth vertical discussion with local experts from Singapore. Uh, so this time around, I didn't say local experts from Singapore General Hospital because we have cast a net even wider and we've actually gone beyond SGH to our colleagues across the the Island uh, National University Hospital. So I'll get Dylan to introduce our, our guests later on. But again, we have a huge house with us today. Um, we've got two Yong Lulin medical students. Uh, we've got the usual co-hosts and we've got two special guests um, with us in our podcast episode today. All right. So um, I think before we introduce the guests, I'm just going to get the medical students involved a bit. All right. So I have two medical students here. Uh, one is Brian and one is Ruth. So they're both doing elective postings with me in, uh, in SGH at the moment. Right, so let me just um, uh, talk to each one of them. So Brian, we'll start with you first, right? So Brian, uh, just introduce yourself to the listeners. Um, you're from Yonglulin, but which year uh, of, of training are you at and what do you want to do with your life? Hello, hi everyone. I'm Brian. I'm a year four medical student from Yonglulin. So right now I'm doing my uh, second week of elective at the gastro department of SGH. Previously in year three, I did uh, my internal medicine posting at SGH as well, and I did rotate through the gastro department. So I'm just very glad to be back here. Yeah. So generally, I find that SGH has a very very good patient load as well as very very teachy department. So I think I'm learning quite well, and I'm glad to be back. So regarding what I want to do uh, in future, to be very honest, I'm more of a surgically inclined person. But in terms of the internal de- uh, internal medicine department, uh, I do find the gastro gastroenterology very interesting because of its wide uh because because of its large involvement of procedures as well as uh very 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 uh science that you can see in pathologies great thanks so much brian so ruth how about yourself okay hi i'm ruth so i'm also a year for medical student from young lulin that's doing my elective so today is actually my first day in my first view of my elective but i'm actually back here for the second time already so i also sim- similar to brian i did my um gastro internal medicine in sgh as well and then subsequently i did my year three elective with the gastro department at um the inflammatory bowel disease for four weeks and then now i'm back here for another two weeks at gastro so actually i'm rather interested in gastro and want to do gastro looking into doing gastro in the future as well so kind of exploring like the different subunits also, whether it's in terms of IBD or IBS, yeah. Great, thanks, thanks so much, Ruth. Uh, so, what what better way to start your your first day of posting with appearing in a podcast episode? I don't think many uh, elective postings will give you such opportunities, right? So, Dylan, um, who who do we have with us today as our guest? So today we have with us a special guest from NUH. He is Dr. Kavinsia. He's a gastroenterologist who specializes in functional gastrointestinal diseases. He completed his specialist training at NUH and also received the NMRC award to study irritable bowel syndrome in the Oppenheimer Neurobiology of Stress Center in UCLA. He's currently running the Gastromotility Lab and a multidisciplinary IBS clinic in NUH. He's also the Secretary General of the Asian Neurogastroenterology and Motility Association, President of Singapore's IBS Support Group, and Executive Committee of the National Foundation Digestive Disease. Today we have with us also Ms. Michelle Shi. She's a Senior Psychologist at SGH Department of Psychology. She currently works together with 
yourself, you know, Dr. Andrew, in running SGH, uh, weekly integrated multidisciplinary functional GI clinic. Great. So uh, let me just uh, get get uh, some time to to speak to to Cohen first. So Cohen, uh, you you are like my uh, twin or what or the brother from another mother from uh, from the other side of the of the country, right? So we are like the very few. I mean, there's so few of us um, IBS doctors in, in in the whole of Singapore. Um, so sometimes I see what you're doing; it really mirrors what I'm doing uh, in 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 my hospital. Uh, and so it's great that you're able to actually collaborate in this uh, episode. But I think just for the sake of the listeners getting to know you, um, what if someone would ask you what what you would what you do for a living, uh, in terms of your your job and your subspecialty, what would you actually tell people? Well, hi everyone. Before I answer your questions, I do agree that we are like twins. I'm just the more handsome one, you know. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, my name is Kevin. Um, I'm on NUH. I am a gastroenterologist that look after people with guts and liver problems generally. However, I also specialize in what we call functional gastrointestinal diseases, like irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, and reflux disease. The funny thing is a lot of listeners may not have heard of functional GI diseases or what we call FGIDs in short. But in Singapore alone, there's an estimated of at least 1 million IBS sufferers, believe it or not. So a lot of you may have the disease but may not know the term ideas itself and uh yeah so uh, i mean this is a audio podcast so i think the listeners probably cannot make that judgment to, to who's actually more handsome right so so i yeah, oh well when they, when they meet us they, they can make that 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 judgment themselves but <laughs> just google just google <laughs> anyway so Kevin, so um what do you actually do in your free time when you're actually not busy at work uh with all these functional gi patients no, I've never have any leisure time. I'm joking. Well, besides um, clinical work, I also enjoy doing research. So actually, I spend a lot of time doing uh, research on IBS. And with the research also, it really brought me into academic tweeting. So I actually tweet a lot on Twitter, just like Andrew, uh, with the handle uh, Elias Kevin Sia. You can go there. I find that um, the Twitter actually allowed us, you know, you know, in although we are in Singapore itself, it connects you to the whole world. For example, if someone wrote a new paper on IBS, you can immediately connect with the author, discuss their problem with them, or if you have something that you want to tell the world, actually, Twitter is a very good uh, place to do. But besides, you know, just very boring, you know, uh, work life, I also have, uh, I also watch a lot of K-drama and K-pop, and uh, woohoo, I got a ticket for Blackpink. <laughs> So, so what, what K-drama are you watching at the moment? I, um, I do watch a lot as well. Um, Right now, I just finished Our Blues. It's, it's something about... uh, what, Oh, yes. I've seen that. I've seen that. It's a good show. Jeju, Jeju Island. Um, It's a really great story. I recommend it to anyone. But one of my favorite, you know, previously was also like, for example, Hospital Playlist. Yeah, boring, boring, right? Doctors watching Doctors drama. I heard uh, Lee Byung Hwan was paid a lot of money to to for for our blues to actually <laughs> act in that show. Well, it was a good show. I really <laughs> recommend. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much, Cohen. So, Michelle, now, now if I were to just ask you um about yourself a bit about yourself, uh, obviously I I know you because I I work with you every week. Uh, so I, I work closely with Michelle because we we run an integrated psychogastro clinic in SGH where I see the patients for the medical issues and I work together with Michelle who's a psychologist. Um, and, but Michelle, how did you even get into psychology to begin with? Okay, actually, I 
I have my degree in nursing. Then during the course of uh, uh, nursing study, I find myself very interested in psychology module. And I, I was really like very fascinated about how human behave, behave certain way, how they think certain way. So to me, the subject is so, so easy and so enjoyable. So after the nursing course, actually I decided to pursue my uh, interest in psychology. Yeah. So um, I did um, you know, a degree in psychology, then uh, pursued a master's in psychology as well. Yeah. So currently uh, in SGH, I, I mean, I see patients with general psychiatric issues like depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, all those. At the same time, I also, uh, together with you, I work with you to see some patients with some health psychology issues like IBS, even patients with like smoking uh, addiction as well. Great. So, so Michelle, just want to ask you, uh, ever yeah. since you did psychology, did your friends and your family, would, would they become more wary around you? When, when Now they know that you, you can psychoanalyze all of them as you, when you speak to them. In a way, yes, especially my kids. Yeah. So they were saying, oh, how come you know this? How come you know that? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it sounds quite cool. Uh, sometimes I'm able to sort of like read their minds. Yeah, but... In a way, I also told them that I, I don't really able. I am not really able to read their minds. I actually observe their behaviors and what they say. And for my children, of course, I know them well, right? So naturally, I know I'm able to sort of like uh, read partially read their minds. Yeah, that's just right. So those of you who watch uh, Star Wars, you know, Jedi mind tricks is not supernatural. They're all just psychologists, and <laughs> so they they understand human nature and they understand why people think a certain way. All right. So thanks so much, Michelle, for that. So Dylan, um, obviously everyone can tell that the topic we're doing this this episode is on irritable bowel syndrome, and we are hoping that the timing of this uh, release of the, I mean the release of this episode will coincide with IBS uh, World IBS Day on nineteenth of April. So we'll see how um, the production goes uh, with regards to getting it out on time. But can you introduce the the case vignette to us, please, Dylan? Yeah, so today we've had, we have with us our patient, uh, Miss Lao Sai Tia. She's a 27-year-old school teacher who has been having abdominal pain and loose stools since she was a teenager. She has seen multiple doctors in the past who have told her various things such as IBS, food allergies, gluten intolerance, as well as psychogenic symptoms. She has had multiple scopes and scans in the past and has been given every brand of probiotics in the market, but her symptoms are not getting better. She ends up in your clinic after another referral from a colleague of yours. And the referral note also includes a point which mentions a young female who is anxious plus plus and requests for you to see and manage for IBS. So before we begin, uh, Dr. Kerwin, you know, could you just tell us and share with the listeners, you know, what is IBS? Um, sure. Uh, by the way, these are very, very, uh, very common cases that we do see in our clinic. And you know, every day, there are really tons of referrals and people who suffer from IBS. Um, so what is IBS? IBS stands for Little Bowel Syndrome. It is a chronic digestive disorder that normally affects the colon. It is functional because normally when you do investigations, you can't find any visible or any abnormalities in the investigations. People who have IBS normally suffer from um, abdominal pain, can be bloating or discomfort, gas, and they do have a change of their bowel habit. Normally, it can be diarrhea, constipation, or a mix of both. 
However, the severity and frequency of syndrome can vary widely from person to person. Of some, some people may also experience other symptoms such as fatigue, anxiety, and depressions. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to um, ask, what do you refer to when you say functional disorders? Oh, okay. It's, it's actually a very um negative term that I don't really like. But a functional disorder actually means it's a medical conditions affect the way an organ or system work without any visible or structural abnormalities. Other diseases, for example, are like um, chronic fatigue syndromes and uh, and IBS, they are quite similar. But in other words, the organ or system that appears to function abnormally, even though it looks normal or on imaging, for example, CD study, or when we do a uh, in-depth diagnostics test like you know endoscopy. And it's believed to cause by combinations of factors from genetic environment and lifestyle. So um, essentially, you know, a lot of patients, when they go and see a doctor, doctor normally say that, Oh, everything is normal. So these are normally what people understand as functional. So um, just to, to add uh, to whatever Kevin said, I, I, I mean, I'm going to try and hold back because uh, I'm not the I'm not the guest here. Kevin's voice is, is nicer than mine anyway. So we'll try to get him to speak as much as, as possible. But there was a very interesting study that that um, uh, they actually surveyed uh, doctor responses to patients in, in a ward and patients who were labeled with functional GI disorders versus patients who were labeled with an organic disorder like cancer or peptic ulcer and you realize that doctors treat them differently because just because the doctor has saw the, the word functional disorder in the patient's uh, electronic records they, they were going to treat the patient in a very different way already so you, that, that you can tell that doctors themselves are very biased towards uh, treating some of these patients they think the patients of a certain kind of personalities they think the patients are difficult and so or, or their condition is not important and therefore they treat them a certain way so it's unfortunate uh, so hope we hopefully can change some of these things uh, as people have a larger awareness of, of these conditions Andrew, I also think that the problem not just you know it's actually started all the way more you know further down like further, it started all in medical school in med school, actually, we are very great at teaching organic diseases. For example, you have heart disease. If you have a uh, heart attack, appendicitis, you know, if you need a surgical removal of any organs, we are great at that. We have a good, for example, liver transplant, this kind of thing. But and also, we are very good when it comes to just pure psychiatric problem. You know, we you have anorexic nervosa, or you have, uh, for example, uh, and great great anxiety or other problem. But in a way, IBS strengthens in between. You know, that's how people see functional. You know, it's standing in between organic and also psychological. And they always carry a sort of like a stigma when you have, say someone, oh, this is another, for example, someone come into emergency department uh, with a functional problem like IBS. Normally people will just say, oh, this is another, you know, functional problem. Because it is, because I think it's so partly because we don't really know what to do with a lot of these patients, you know. And that, that's why it, it shows the, you know, the lack of training and resources that we have to effectively manage, you know, functional disorder, I think it's quite pathetic. Yes, pathetic is a it's a nice word. So, Ruth, I just want to ask you. I mean, being a student yourself, um, going through training right now, um, irritable bowel syndrome uh, is this a condition that you you are, you guys are even taught at all in school? Because it is one of the most, if not the most, common condition that we see in, in as a GI physician. I think so far after going through. Um, clinical work, we didn't really have any specific teachings on IBS specifically. Most of the time, it's just briefly mentioned as one of the diagnoses that we need to think about, but it's also like a lower down ranked diagnosis. If we say it first, then people will say, oh, it shouldn't be one of your first few, if not. 
it shouldn't be up there <laughs> at all. Yeah, so we don't really have much teachings on it or like any concrete like tutorials or thoughts. Funny enough, uh, Andrew, you know, in our Singapore, for example, one in five uh, people have IBS, but within medical students, I think the rate will probably be one in two. Yeah, I think because of the of the high levels of uh, stress, poor eating habits, um, and the hypochondriac nature also of a lot of uh, medical students. But yet, the students themselves will never say they have IBS. They will believe they have something organic. They will say that they have uh, ulcer, they have IBD maybe, in, uh, or even cancer, but they just refuse to entertain the fact that what they have is probably a functional GI disorder. It goes to show how, how, much, uh, how little awareness there is, uh, even within our healthcare professionals. So within just three medical students, there are about one and one point five of them have IBS. So thanks so much. Moving on with the, the case, you know, when evaluating a patient with uh, suspected IBS, you know, what are a prudent set of investigations that we can use to evaluate a patient like Ms. Lau? So for um for many cases, um for this group of patients, the main thing is look out uh for clues in the histories. The thing that you really want to listen is to make sure that there's no red flags in history, for example, whether uh, there is uh, blood in the stool, whether uh, there are feelings, uh, symptoms of more of uh, anemia, for example, chest pain and soreness of breath, or whether they have also family history of other more of organic uh, uh, problems, like, you know, if a history of character uh, cancer or history of IBD in the family. These are some clues that there may be something else that's going on other than IBS. But not all, not all of uh, the patients that come with IBS need to have investigations. But the tests that we normally order for patients include, for example, blood tests, like full blood count, C-reactive uh, protein uh, to look for inflammations. And we also order stool tests. In some hospitals, they, they probably can order carbotectin as well to look for whether there's any uh, associated GI inflammations. And uh, for cases that we suspect, just now we suspect, you know, if they have red flag signs or in more you know, older patients, we will normally order uh, endoscopy, in this case, probably a colonoscopy to, to see whether there's any involvement in the lung through a flexible tube with camera kind of thing to, to check for any other thing. But if they also have other, for example, loss of weight and you know, may consider imaging study, for example, uh, from ultrasound to CT scans also. These are sort of the kind of simple sort of prudent uh, set of investigation that we probably order for people, patients with IBS. But again, as I said, you know, if they have typical symptoms of IBS, you may not need to do all this kind of test. Mm, Dr. Kerwin, so I'd like to um, ask, what is it on this test that you're looking out for that's causing the IBS? Well, it's actually looking for Everything, you know, you, you really want to look for everything that is always called normal, you know, nothing that's abnormal because what we are interested in ruling out or differential diagnosis that important to rule out include inflammatory bowel disease. So normally for inflammatory bowel disease, you know, it will be different from the fact maybe from history, you know, we have PR bleeding and from investigation, we have raised white cell, raised inflammatory markers and also just now I said about stool carbotectin also we have raised uh, stool carbotectin. These are one of the you know kidding, but also for example, they want to rule out the case from corrector cancer or so. But I think anyone that uh they can also do like for example, if they have done from what government saying, you know, those two uh regular stool examinations for fit tests or for corrector examination, and that would be quite suffice. 
Hi, Dr. Karim. Maybe can I just ask, why do some people develop IBS? Well, well, this is a, this is a topic that I'm still, you know, a lot of research are going into. But uh, I can tell that one of the main reasons for developing IBS, first is um, if you are uh, exposed to a lot of stress, you know, the brain gut axis is very important. It's one of the most important causes of uh, causing IBS. The other one that people are interested in is post-infectious causes. So a lot of patients who have severe gastroenteritis. Similarly, after COVID-19, a lot of people uh, who have uh, GI involvement in COVID-19, they can develop post-infectious IBS and now post-COVID-19, you know, IBS. And the the third will be multi, a lot of the patients will be multifactorial and still under investigations. But, you know, to be honest, normally we can't really pinpoint one or the other. So moving on with the case, the patient realizes that she's in an integrated clinic and which is slightly different from before, where the gastroenterologist and the psychologist are working side by side. And so Ms. Lau is referred next door to Michelle, our psychologist, as an adjunct treatment strategy. So psychogastroenterology or gastrocyte is a relatively new thing in Asia, but has existed for a while elsewhere. Uh, Michelle, could you share with us you know, what a psychologist does um, in this role? So as a gastropsychologist, we help patients to have a better understanding about the gastro issue and also to learn about brain-gut connection, help them to develop some strategies to manage their ongoing uh, symptoms and also adjust to living with the condition. So many patients with GI disorder, they actually develop some fears about the food plan and also they try to actually uh, restrict diet, uh, restrict sort of like food in the hope of controlling symptoms. They also may have some worries about the symptoms like pain, diarrhea, and avoid, therefore avoid activities they used to do. So an approach called uh, gradual exposure therapy can be offered. Lah. So in this therapy, uh, patients learn to challenge their irrational thoughts in a supportive gradual approach. Uh, it can range from weeks to months. Uh. So in summary, as a GI um, psychologist, we actually provide patients with tools to improve their coping strategies and uh, also to learn some stress management skills and also sometimes probably learn to live the, uh, some of GI symptoms as well. Okay, Michelle, if I may ask you some questions. Um, hmm. uh, I... I mean, I, I I know the answer to this, but I think <laughs> for, for the benefit of the listeners, just want to ask you, you know, some yeah. patients, they get a bit confused, right? When we say we're going to send them to see a psychologist, they, they assume that we're sending them to see a psychiatrist, right? <laughs> it's, it's a, and, and so the first question I have to you is, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, right? And then that's the first question. Question number two is, um, how different is a general psychologist from someone who sub-specializes in, in GI psychology? Okay. Yeah, I think that's, those are the very good questions because sometimes patients do ask us these kind of questions as well. Yeah. And uh, they mix us up with the psychiatrists. Psychiatrists are um, medical doctors. They have the training, you know, in medicine and they also learn some um, uh, psychology, sort of like uh, skills, maybe like therapy. But basically, they are able to prescribe medications. While for psychologists, we usually, all of us, uh, 
we don't have the rights to prescribe medications. The therapy that we use is usually is uh, some uh, sort of like a, uh, the common ones like cognitive behavior therapy, uh, mindfulness, all this. To people say it's talking therapy, yeah, to help patients to um, navigate, help them to solve the problems and manage the issues as well. So without any medication. Then for GI psychologists, uh, particularly focused on the GI-related issues. But the general psych psychologist works on mental health issues, like anxiety, depression, could be related to trauma history, you know, long-standing interpersonal conflicts, and uh, some personality disorders. So for GI specifically psychologists, uh, aside from those therapy skills, they need to have two additional skills. Uh, those are very important ones for GI psychologists. First is engagement skill. Because most of our IBS patients, uh, they come to us and they, you know, they are at this contemplation stage. And they may not fully understand why they end up in this place. You know, they, they might be like asking, I also don't know why I'm here. I know you all have done a good job, you know, explaining to them, blah, blah, blah. Why, what's the reason for referring them to us? But when they come to us, either they, they are, you know, probably they don't really, uh, they are not receptive and they probably also want to see what, what service, what we provide for them. So they're still asking questions like, why, why I'm here? I also don't know why, why I'm here. Yeah. So um, therefore, it's important to engage them. So usually I use some of the motivational skills, motivational interviewing skills, and also sometimes some solution-focused skills to, to approach them. Secondly, we also need to have uh, a good knowledge about GI symptoms and illness, including the you know, IBS etiology, epidemiology, current diagnosis and treatment methods. Yeah, as uh, just now Dr. Kevin mentioned, for us working with IBS patients, we need to have both knowledge of, you know, uh, G, uh, IBS at the same time also have the knowledge of psychologists, you know, so have both. Otherwise, if you only have one, I think it will be hard for a patient to to feel comfortable talking to us. Yeah. So, so Michelle, there are, I mean, for my, there are many different kinds of psychological therapies, right? I mean, some of the common mm. ones that the listeners may know will be things like cognitive behavioral therapy. There's, there's a different variants of mindfulness. Uh, you have acceptance and commitment therapy. So there's many different kinds. But when you receive a patient that's being referred to you, how do you actually decide uh, which one you would use for which patient? How, how do you make that decision? Okay, when patients come to our session for the first session, usually um, I will assess them. So um, a comprehensive uh, assessment uh, is essential to, to attain a valid formulation and a working, you know, uh, you know says for, sorry, working uh, a valid formulation to work with them. Uh, yeah. So psychological assessment with GI patients uh, usually need to include um, their motivation level and also the interpersonal functions in order to plan an individualized uh, treatment plan uh, and with some, with the realistic expectations. I will usually assess the current IBS symptoms, the onset, frequency, duration, also family history of IBS, psychiatric history, then uh, coping 
star, any social support, and also any um, distorted eating patterns. Yeah. I also will ask them about their beliefs, about their condition, their feeling, their behaviors related to the current uh, IBS issue. So um, and I will also explore actually the, the trauma history because in case they have all these other psychological comorbidities as well. I will ask about uh, the, uh, any attachment issues and also the beliefs, perceptions. All this will be actually um, be included uh, during the first session. Yeah, so some of the questions I probably will ask them, you know, like, uh, does anything seem to trigger, trigger, trigger your symptoms like uh, food, uh, stress? Or have you ever, uh, have you recently experienced any significant stress, any emotional difficulties, any losses? Yeah. And then uh, also like a question like, how much would you say your symptoms are affected by your quality of life? You know, even your personal relationship, your work, your school, all these functions. So the purpose of assessment is to determine the severity of the condition, to identify whether they have any coping issues, any more adaptive beliefs to be addressed. So um, based on the assessment, then I will plan for the treatment plan for them. So, so Michelle, I, I mean, I've, I've worked in uh, Australia before as well, and I've, um, I, I, I think Asian patients and Western patients are very different in the way they perceive the situation. Uh, I'm not sure what Cohen thinks, right? So it's, um, I, I noticed that Asians tend to be a lot more goal-oriented. Uh, they don't really like to talk as much, uh, but they just want to have something they can work towards. I, I may be wrong, but that's just my, my observation. Uh, but do, do you feel that Asians are very different? Because a lot of the literature that we read uh, about Western patients and what works for them. Definitely, yeah. So, so, you see, um, for for us uh, Asian people, uh, we are we are actually uh, more of like uh, you know, uh, think ourselves as interde interdependent. While in Western culture, they tend to actually, you know, they they regard self as most important, and they tend to value independence. So. As a result, our patients might actually put a lot of expectation on to healthcare professionals to fix the IBS issue and to, to externalize what we call as locus of control. You know, they will feel that, you know, you, you should help me, you should help me to do this. Yeah, instead of they themselves like thinking how to how to manage. Sometimes I do feel that some of our patients uh, tend to have this kind of mentality, especially the uh, older ones. So um and also, uh, when talking about IBS issue, let's say when we talk about stress, psychological factors, they may feel quite uncomfortable because like discussing psychological issues or mental health issues is really considered a taboo in our Asian culture. You know? So our patients may tend to like dismiss or deny their psychological symptoms and focus on more of somatic symptoms. And even the family members, you know, I have patients, younger patients, the family members actually ask them, why, why do you need to see a psychologist? It's just that your stomach problem. Yeah. And then based on my observation, I think our patients generally prefer to have more of the behavioral interventions. They, they don't really like to have homework on cognitive restructuring. You know? they, they prefer something to do. More, uh, 
like specific behaviors, more of the uh, able to do something. And they also usually are less receptive uh, towards the idea of uh, body-mind connection. They may agree, but they seems that they don't really totally agree. Yeah. Only when they experience some sort of like a benefit, then they will say, oh, probably it works. But it's through the behavioral intervention. Yeah. So it uh, seems uh, quite hard to convince them that there is this actually body, uh, gut, uh, sorry, brain gut connection. Yeah. So they may need to take a bit of time to accept this idea. Yeah. I think I uh, agree with uh, Andrew and Michelle also. There, in our own um, IBS clinic, we also have a psychology clinic that we refer to. And um, I think there are two main problems when it comes to uh, local. Uh, patients. One is uh, the poor understanding of what actually is a psychological service and what uh, do they actually do inside. A lot of them actually got it from uh, a lot of TV or movies. I think the last we, last memory anyone have about psychological uh, assessment is Kelly Chan playing a psychologist in Infernal Affair and you know, and Tony Leung lying there sleeping. And uh, that is uh, what people believe. A lot of patients actually still talk to me that you know this is I don't need that. I can sleep at home. And the second thing is, um, what are patients like what Andrew said just now? You know, a lot of the Asian patients are more goal oriented. So I don't refer my patient to psychologists. And if you tell them that, oh, I think you have deep seated issue when you are young, you know, and you have family problem, and you, you know, maybe your previous kind of your uh, your upbringing have caused all these kind of issues that you are developing IBS now. I say that do you have stress? You know, you want to go and see a psychologist because then maybe you get it better. In that sense, then they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't have issue, but I don't know how to deal with stress. Oh, it's a good. So that is unfortunately a way to get them to see a psychologist. And from there, they actually learn. A lot of people actually, after coming back from uh, the psychology clinic, they just said actually they learn a lot about themselves. They actually um, do improve and they really thank us for referring them. Before that, they really have no idea what exactly, exactly is uh, a psychological referral for just to uh, slightly go off tangent, so Kevin made a remark about infernal affairs. So just just in case, no, uh, some of the listeners have no idea what infernal affairs is. There, there was a Hollywood movie in two thousand six called The Departed. Uh, I think it was star starring Leonardo DiCaprio. So that wasn't the original uh storyline. That was based on the 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 Hong Kong movie Infernal Affairs, right? So if you ever find the original Infernal Affairs, that's the movie to, to go and watch. And, and like him, that was my first exposure to what a psychologist does. So it's a common theme as well. Right? So um, Michelle, if I may ask, you know, how can GI physicians help you better in the way we refer patients to you for treatment? Okay. So um, for, for GI physicians, I think it will be very helpful to assess patients' motivation level and refer them to us if they, they are motivated and they are willing to commit to treatment therapy. Yeah. And those patients who are open to the role of stress or psychological factors, you know, uh, impacting the, the, the health issues, IBS issues, and they also accept the idea that using psychological method to manage their symptoms would be also a good fit. Lah. Then um, some of them, if they feel that, that, you know, stress, they recognize that stress is a psychological factor that trigger or exacerbate their symptoms. Or the other way around, that GI problems that actually cause 
become a stressor to them. So this group of patients also can refer to us. Yeah. But for patients who, if they have, a, you know, uh, uh, quite severe psychological issues like suicidal ideation, severe depression, anxiety, uh, personality disorder, all this uh, need to refer to psychiatrists uh, instead. Yeah. So the patient leaves the room of the psychologist and comes back to the GI physician's room for further management. And Dr. Kerwin, you know, could you tell us a bit about personalized treatment in IBS? Is this something that is possible and you know, how do we achieve this? Well, personalized treatment for IBS is something that we work towards and a lot of research and a lot of study are going towards how do we can how do we do personalized treatment better for IBS? Essentially involve um a few I think important steps. First is accurate diagnosis. You don't need to now I say you know do all the tests, but you know if you fulfill for example we follow room four criteria you know uh the history of uh IB history that uh be that fulfill IBS for example if someone have uh recurrent abdominal pain on average at least one day per week in the last three months and is related to at least two of the more following related notification associated with change in frequency of stool associated in form or parent of stool, then, you know, they can be considered as, you know, having uh, accurate diagnosis of IBS. But most of the time, we don't normally follow it very um, strictly in our clinic. As long as they have abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating, so they change of bowel habit, we do take that as IBS. The second thing is identify triggers. Now, a lot of people have different triggers. For example, the psychosocial factors, the trigger that we talked about just now, but also triggers when it comes to uh, food stresses or other things. These need to be found out and tackled. The other thing is individualized treatment or diet. Uh, a lot of people tell you, a lot of patients tell me that you know they cannot eat uh, certain food. For example, in uh, in Singapore, Asia, you know, curry, uh, chili are very common. We also drink a lot of coffee. You know. These are some of the things that uh, can you know trigger or cause uh, IBS. And actually, we do have dietitians who are trained in IBS that discuss what is good for them. For example, you don't need to you know, avoid something, but a good eating habit actually helps with IBS. There's also, for example, low FODMAP diet that has been developed and researched to be effective in reducing IBS symptoms for some people. However, it's really important to work with the dietitian to make sure that your diet is in balance and also you won't suffer from nutritional deficiency or even eating disorder from you know, individualized diets. The fourth thing is you know, using good medications. Not all medications are suitable for people and not all medications should be used indefinitely. So you should really try and error. A doctor uh, should really know what are the side effects of other drugs and or and use the right medication for right people. You may have you may have, for example, a family member who has IBS that is taking certain drugs, but it doesn't mean that you are suitable to take that drug. So everyone is different. And um last but not least, the as psychotherapies that you know um just now Michelle was talking about is very important as part of our treatments. We always you know look out and screen for people in our clinic who may have psychological issues and you think will benefit from a visit to the psychologist. Last but not least, um lifestyle modification. And this actually should be the first, but um a lot of things that we do, for example, regular exercise, uh, adequate sleep, sleep affects IBS, and also you know, learn how to um, stress management and also um, multitasking in your work. These are all very important uh, ways to help reduce IBS symptoms. And one of the things that we learned also during uh, COVID-19 is um, a lot of 
patients suffer from what we call work-related uh, stress. You know, uh, so surprisingly, when they are staying at home, some of them actually have better control of their symptoms. So it's important to look into your work life and see what is causing your problem, you know, the triggers and how, you know, you know, by doing the right thing, for example, correcting uh, how you go to work, how much time you spend uh, at night doing work and how much time you sleep can actually change a lot uh, of your symptoms. Dr. Kerwin, so what is the pathophysiology of IBS? And also, how can we target therapies based on the pathophysiology? You, well, can write, you can write a dissertation for this, Kerwin, so I'll leave it up to you. Sorry, I think these are very uh, two very big topics. But let's talk about you know what are the exact causes of IBS. We still don't know, obviously, you know, don't know fully about what is causing IBS. We think that it's interplay of various factors, including you know some patients may have abnormal GI motility. We say that some patients may have uh faster, for example, uh, altered bowel movement. Some may have constipation. Some may have um diarrhea problem. A lot of patients have uh, visceral hypersensitivities. They have heightened sensitivity to pain and discomfort in the digestive tracts. And um, gut-brain axis dysfunction, the gut is often referred to as the second brain because they have their own complex net network in uh, the gut. So which communicate with the central nervous system. Dysfunction in this communication actually will contribute to the development of IBS as well. And the fourth factor, for example, will include your psychological factors, emotional stress, anxiety and depression that we talked about a lot just now. And uh, food. Food is becoming a very big factor in IBS also. Certain food, for example, your lactose, fructose, gluten, gluten and what we call a FODMAP food, can also trigger IBS symptoms in a lot of patients. And last but not least, you know, the microbiome dysbiosis. Now, the microbiome, which consists of trillions of microorganisms that live in your body, in your gut, may, has been proved to be important in the development of IBS. Changes in the composition and diversity of your gut microbiome has also been associated with IBS symptoms. We are using more and more you know, microbiome or targeted therapy to help people with IBS. It's important to know the all these underlying causes so that when you talk to the patient or screen the patient for different uh, triggers, you may you may able you may be able to uh, develop or personalize the kind of treatments that you can develop for your patients. And from there, also then we will link with different drugs that you use. For example, you know if you have. This time we ask about what kind of drugs link with what kind of pathology, right? This is a very good question because this is what people are trying to get back to when it comes to treatment of IBS. For example, if they have abnormal germ motility or pain, you know, use the antispasmodic spasmod or laxative. If they have, for example, microbiome dysbiosis, a lot of people believe that, you know, probiotic uh, is important. And there are still a lot of uh, research and study along the line of how to use, for example, uh, rifaximin. Uh, to help with people may have small intestinal uh, bacterial overgrowth. And there are also studies in fecal transplant uh, to see whether it helps in IBS, but these are all still in the process of research. Yes, so we should definitely you know, think about the, by linking etiology and treatments to come up with a good personalized treatment for IBS patients. Hi, Dr. Kuwain. Um, So what are some of the newer medications for IBS? <laughs> Thanks, Ruth. These are normally the questions that a lot of doctors like to ask. What are the new things? What are the new things? Essentially, uh, listening is the new thing. Ah, no, I'm just joking. But it's true, you know, listening to your patient and be um, patient and, you know, 
able to you know understand what the patient is going through uh, is actually very important in IBS. I think if you learn that, I wanted to say that to all the patients, all the, uh, the doctors that ask me this question, but you know, if they really learn that, then I think there's a new thing for your patient you know, because you're lacking on that, sorry. <laughs> but for medication, yeah, there are a lot of you know, new medication that coming out, whether it's um, under investigation in the West or here, for example, Alostron, Deloxadolin uh, that's not available in Singapore, but also some of the newer thing, for example, rifloximine is available in Singapore. It's an antibiotic that is used to treat, just like I say, bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. A lot of patients who are tested positive with small uh, bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, SIBO, actually uh, will react very positively to uh, rifloximine. Other drugs include, uh, for example, patients who have uh, conservation predominant IBS, uh, lidacronide is a medication that should be considered also especially for patients that doesn't respond to other treatments. It works by increasing the secretion of fluid in the intestine, which can help alleviate constipation and abdominal pain. These are some of the newer drugs in the market, but there are a lot more medication that is still under-researched and hopefully we'll be able to bring uh, them in, in, into Singapore soon. I think I totally agree with Kerwin. I mean, uh, I think for the last 10 years, maybe the, the biggest difference maker for managing IBS patients has been an integrated clinic that I can work with uh, a psychologist at Michelle. So pain um, is, is a very complex phenomenon. I, I don't think it, we can simplify it by see, giving patients just one medication to solve all their problems. I think a lot of times, especially for chronic pain sufferers, they have a lot of... Um, uh, their perception of their pain has been clouded by a lot of other issues. It could be psychological issues, social issues. And if you don't handle everything together, you will never get to the root of the problem. Uh, and so for me, I think being able to understand humans better and understanding the medical nature together with the psychosocial nature has been a, a very uh, revealing way of managing these patients. And I think understanding gut physiology well uh, is also very important because empirical treatment generally do not work very well. If you understand based on the history, based on the chronology of events, what the potential mechanism of the symptoms are, then I think you stand a good chance of treating it with the right choice of medications and the right lifestyle change as well. So I think it, it's um it's not an easy answer because you get we get phone calls right from colleagues and they say, oh, can you tell me what drug to give to this patient who is still having pain? And I was like, I, I can't tell you with the phone because I need to know who this patient is and what they are like before I can even make a judgment on that. And so sometimes you end up seeing the patients in clinic because you cannot give that kind of recommendation just over the phone. So I think that's the, the nature of what we do as functional GI physicians. right? So um, th this is the last question before we ask Kevin. Uh, also, Kevin, yes, what you want to say something? Andrew, have a, you know, it's, it's not in the script, but I want to ask you, if someone, if someone, let's say, you know, suddenly, you know, let's say NUS alumni, you know, suddenly say that, oh, I have one, I will have $5 million to give to your IBS clinic. How would you spend this $5 million? I'll, I'll take it for myself. I mean, that's a very simple question. <laughs> I'm not going to give it to anyone else. <laughs> when will I ever get $5 million again? <laughs> but, but I mean, jokes aside, I I don't know where I'll park the $5 million to, to help with, with uh, IBS uh, research. I mean, the IBS research is... is it's, it's not. It's different. The landscape is very different from things like IBD, from hepatology. Um, I I don't think it's a heavily pharma-driven kind of industry. Also, and, and so where that money goes, um, I mean, because I have Michelle here, right? I, I'm going to invest that money to to set up a, a school for for GI psychologists, right? And and then we're going to train uh 
a pipeline of GI psychologists to help with our patients. $5 million may not be enough, but I think that's a good start. I agree. So maybe we should clone a lot more Michelle's. <laughs> we we have tried to you know get more um more dietitians, psychologists to be invest to be interested in functional GI. I think you know this money, for example, if really we have you know five minutes is not is um it will be a good sum of money to you know for us to train more you know uh not just doctors but you know train more dietitians, psychologists or even psychiatrists to be um to be interested in uh, treating functional GI diseases and also you know to be able to um have more like you know more people understand maybe some awareness more awareness like video because one in one in five and you know at least one million of people in Singapore are suffering from IBS. I think you know we need more more and better awareness program. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Kerwin, and thanks so much, uh, Michelle, for you know sharing your approach to patients with IBS. So before we conclude this episode, you know, could both of you share with us, you know, some take-home points when dealing with a patient with IBS? Michelle. Okay. Uh, if the take-home points for the residents, uh, I think the first thing as Dr. Kavi mentioned, listening. But here I put down validation. So it's um, it's very important for I think for the healthcare workers to really understand where they are coming from. And IBS is not just all in their mind. It's really real. You know, they really experience seeing that although you can't see anything from your 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 scope or whatever investigations, all nothing. But they are experiencing is really real. So show some of your empathy, you know, to to share that you you understand it's very difficult for them, this and that, yeah. Number two is to refer, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, refer those patients who are motivated to the psychological, to psychologists. Last one, continue seeing your patients, don't abandon them. Because if you discharge them, some of our patients will perceive as it's, you know, you just don't care about me and you just throw me to the psychologist. Yeah, so it will cause quite a lot of frustration. Yeah, these are the three points I, I want to highlight. Same with, uh, thank you, Michelle. Same with Michelle. I also have three things that I would like to share with you. I think you need three things uh, to be good in uh, treating IBS patients. You need ear, heart, and thick skin. So you need your ear to listen to patients. Let the patient tell their stories. You know, Normally in med school, you say that, you know, let them, uh, at least let the patient tell their story for, for five minutes. I realize that a lot, of, a lot of people just stop at two or three, which is ridiculous. Let them talk about five minutes because history is where you get your diagnosis. Second thing, you need to have an empathic heart, ability and willingness to relate, not just cognitively or emotionally to someone suffering, but really listen with your heart of what they are going through. A lot of patients that come to you, they have suffered for seven years, eight years, 10 years, and they don't come to me because they have IBS. They come to me, for example, they want a scope, they want, uh, they have a positive stool OB, and they say that, oh, they have already given up on you know, helping their long-term conservation. They have, a lot of them wear like pampers for incontinence or they, they don't, they have not been traveling for many years because they are afraid of not getting or finding toilet in time. So really, you need to understand what they have been going through, you know, so that you help, you do better and try to help them. And the last thing is, huh, I'm not sure whether you agree, but we need to have thick skin. 
my thick skin. Because doctors are used to uh, people telling them that, oh, you're very good, you know, since young, top in class, great in maths, foot in sport. I'm describing myself. But anyway, um, <laughs> unfortunately, FGID, including IBS, are very complex issues and require a lot of try and error. A lot of time patients come to you and say that, doctors, your drug didn't help me. And it is at this point that you shouldn't say, oh, it's not me, it's you. You know? And, and this is approach that actually, you know, a lot of the patient will reject. Many doctors cannot accept criticism from patient and admit that sometimes they just don't know best. You know, be frank with your patients. You know, not... IBS is something that we're still trying to look for a cure. Unfortunately, we have none of that. But there are methods and there are medications that can make their life better. Just share that with your patients, you know, be frank with them. And if you don't know, then you better refer. You know, that is, I think, a very important thing that doctors or if let's say if there's any uh, medical student among you, I, I challenge you to take up um, IBS as a subspecialty to come and join me and uh, or Andrew. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Corinne, for that uh, invitation. Uh, I, as a program director of my own program, I, I struggle even to get my, my residents to, to choose this as a subspecialty. Right, so I, I think I'd just like really thank uh, Cohen and Michelle for coming on to our show, as well as for Brian and Ruth for making time to actually co-host this episode with me and Dylan. Um, this is uh this episode on irritable bowel syndrome is uh something that I can talk on forever and ever because uh it is a topic close to my heart, but you know at some point we have to to call it, um, I mean we have to stop because it's, if not it may drag on for for far too long. So I hope all the listeners have enjoyed the conversation and then as much as, as we did. Do take a look at our Padlet website. If you just Google Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E and you type Guts and Glory, it should appear as one of the first set of results. Then we, in, inside, we're going to put show notes, infographics and important reference articles for some of these topics that um, we are discussing. So we're again, we're honoured that we are part of your learning journey. So until next time, take care everyone and stay safe.